Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background, making sure that the recording gets done and everything is smoothly edited and uh, delivered to you. Uh, we are at the end of a short series on the book of Jonah, which is part of a longer series on prophecy. We started with a, uh, an episode on the general question of what is a prophet and what does prophecy involve in scripture. And we uh, decided to take an easy swipe at one prophetic book, the book of Jonah, to uh, get us into more details about prophecy and a particular prophet. Uh, this is the final episode in that short series on Jonah. And uh, from here on, we're going to try to tackle a more difficult and challenging prophetic book, the book of Daniel, which will start in the next episode. Uh, but we're in, we're in Jonah 4. And just to set this up, a reminder about how the book of Jonah is constructed. We made this point at the beginning of our series on Jonah. But you basically have two panels in Jonah. Chapters 1 and 2 form the first panel. Chapters 3 and 4 form the second panel. And the parallels are clear, clearest when you uh, look at chapters 1 and 2. In both chapters, the Lord comes to Jonah, orders him to go and prophesy. There's a, there's a cr- contrast, of course, in the way Jonah responds to that. In chapter 1, he flees from Nin- in the other direction from Nineveh rather than going to Nineveh. In chapter 3, he actually goes to Nineveh. But still there are parallels within that. As Jonah is fleeing, he still testifies to the Lord as the God of heaven, earth, and sea. Uh, and in the midst of the storm, the sailors on board the ship uh, begin to sacrifice and praise Yahweh. So there's a there's a, a successful prophetic ministry on board the ship. Uh, and the same thing happens in chapter 3, where Jonah now willingly goes to Nineveh, preaches to Nineveh, and the result is that the the king of Nineveh orders a fast and orders repentance so that the, the city can be spared, and the city is spared because of this widespread act of repentance. So in both cases, we have kind of a similar outcome with the, the sailors anticipating, foreshadowing the response of the uh, the people of Nineveh. Uh, the, the, the parallels between chapters uh, 2 and 4 are not as obvious, but I think they're at some level they're pretty clear. Uh, both of them involve a prayer, uh, Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish in chapter 2. It begins with uh, the phrase that Jonah prayed to the Lord. That's the same beginning of the phrase. Uh, that's the same phrase that begins chapter four. Uh, in chapter two, there's no dialogue. It's just Jonah's prayer. In chapter four, there's going to be a dialogue back and forth between uh, Yahweh and Jonah. And within chapter four, uh, I want to suggest a couple of structural notes before we go forward. But uh, there are uh, three three times that Jonah uh, says that he wants to die. Uh, he wants to die at the beginning because uh, he doesn't like the way the Lord has dealt with Nineveh. Take my life for me. Death is better than life, he says in verse 3. And then the Lord appoints uh, a bush, a worm, and a scorching wind. And then Jonah is left in misery, and he again says, Death is better to me than life in verse 8. Um, and then the Lord confronts him again. Do you have a good reason to be angry? And Jonah says, I have reason to be angry even to death. So three times Jonah expresses the wish to die in the course of the chapter. And you can look at the chapters kind of going through those cycles. But I, 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 think that, I think that I discovered a kind of chiastic structure in the chapter. As long as you include the last verse of chapter 3, uh, 3.10, where the Lord turns from his anger because of the repentance of the Ninevites, 
and that would that would link up with the final verses of chapter four, where the Lord explains His compassion for a city with 120,000 persons and also many cattle. So the relenting uh, from judgment and uh, the Lord's uh, declaration about His compassion match up. Uh, then you have Jonah praying, ending with "Death is better to me than life," and Jonah prays again in the second part of verse nine. I have good reason to be angry even unto death. The Lord asks basically the same question twice. In verse 4, do you have reason to be angry? In verse 9, do you have reason to be angry about the plant? So you have that match up. And then in the middle of the section, you have uh, verses 5 through 8, where uh, Jonah goes outside the city and waits for the city to be destroyed, apparently. And he first makes a, forms a booth, and then the Lord appoints uh, this series of appoints a series of things. Those those three, each of each, uh, verses uh, six through six, six through eight has the Lord appointing something, uh, and that that whole exchange, which uh, is kind of a, uh, an enacted parable, trying to teach uh, Jonah some kind of lesson about uh, his attitude toward Nineveh and about the Lord's own compassion toward Nineveh. That that's the center of that's the center of chapter four. So um, I think that I think that works pretty smoothly. The things that don't quite fit. But, uh, one of the things that is makes it clear is the repetition of the Lord's question. Do you have, is it good for you to be angry in verse four and at the beginning of verse nine, that kind of frames the central section where Jonah is out east of the city and the Lord is teaching him this lesson through a series of, through a series of appointments. And one of the questions we've been, we've uh, dealt with throughout our series on Jonah is the question of what motivates Jonah. And that question has really been ambiguous we're not told anything about why he flees away from Nineveh at the beginning of the book. Um, we're not really told why he goes to Nineveh in chapter 3. But I think we have here in chapter 4 something like an answer when the Lord challenges him why uh, about his anger. And he explains his anger by referring to the Lord's compassion. This is what he knew would, would happen. It's important to notice that the explanation for his running away is quoting a statement that we have um, from the story of Exodus. In the people's rebellion with the golden calf, the Lord, um, or Moses intercedes with the Lord for the people, and then the Lord reveals himself to Moses and expresses his character in verse 6 and following of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, etc. And it seems to me that Jonah's response is playing off that, but there's a shift in um, the way that he speaks. Um, so the idea of God's truth is not present in the same way. Rather, he sees the fact that God relenting from disaster substitutes for that. Um, and it seems that there's a competition or a struggle between justice and compassion in um, Jonah's thinking. Jonah is the son of Amittai. His, the very name of his father might suggest that he's committed to this idea of truth. But for him, truth is connected with justice, the idea that God is not going to just let things slide. And the idea that God would forgive this people and allow them to just 
repent and be restored is a, an offense to him. And so he sees this compassion that God shows as something that is an unpleasant aspect of God's character, something that he doesn't want to accept or live with. And the whole chapter that follows is an exploration of the difference, I think, between compassion and um, the sort of strict justice that Jonah is seeking. I think that's really helpful, the way you're talking, Alistair, about those two characteristics of, we could call them mercy and, and truth, which kind of play off one another. And um, it's, it's interesting. I, I was looking, actually, at, at um, how that goes on in Exodus 34, in God's original uh, declaration of, of his own character. And um, he says, as, as you read out, you know, that he, God says he is steadfast in um uh, in love and in truth. And then he goes on saying, keeping steadfast love to thousands of generations, um, but by no means clearing the guilty. And when you read that, you, you kind of think that that's slightly, um, slightly odd because how do you forgive iniquity for thousands of generations, but by no means clear the guilty? I mean, that's just what forgiveness is, isn't it? Just acquitting the guilty you know and so i was thinking over that uh description of god's character and i think probably these two terms you know chesed and emet you know faithfulness and and truth i think they're basically um both to do with faithfulness but faithfulness to different aspects of god's covenant and god's promises and so keeping steadfast love to those who are loyal to god's covenant it is sort of being faithful to god's promise to to keep his his people and um by no means clearing the guilty is is still being faithful um but it's being faithful to god's promise to to punish those who who do wrong and to um uh, ensure that justice is done in the world and i actually went through um all the references in scripture to that declaration of gods in exodus 34 and all of them kind of quote the start of it and they go on either to mention god's chesed you know god's faithfulness or god's emet god's truth and the ones that talk about god's chesed go on to talk only about his forgiveness and the one that the ones which go on to talk about god's uh, truth go on to talk about his his judgment and um it strikes me as important that in um chapter two of jonah jonah refers i think to the ninevites in verse eight as um those who have forsaken their opportunity like their hope of of chesed um of of steadfast love um jonah thinks that the ninevites have sort of given up on uh their chances of getting that and that all that is left is is truth and as a result yeah, he, he's he's angry. Seems to me that throughout the book, Jonah wants to check out of the game, as it were. He just does not like the rules by which things are operating. If the Lord's justice and compassion work in the way that he believes that they do, he's quite happy to be thrown. He, first of all, he wants to escape, to run away altogether. Then he's quite happy to be thrown into the sea, presumably to die. He's not afraid um, likewise, at this point, when he experiences the situation with the gourd, 
he wants to die. Um, we can think of this maybe like the character of Elijah, who also has this desire to die. His his mission is not something that he wants to go on with. If it's going to work out in the way that it does, if he's the only one who's left, if the Lord is not going to bring about the effective um, judgment and um, transformation of the people that he hopes for and that didn't actually materialize after Carmel, then he's just not interested. Likewise, with Jeremiah's feeling of bearing the word of the Lord that is all judgment and he can't even pray for the people, the pain of the mission as he discovers its shape is too much for him to bear. And so he just wants to check out at this point. Over the course of the week, I came across a citation from Jerome who uh, says something similar to what Jeff is saying, that uh, he says something like the penitence of the Gentiles is going to bring disaster to the Jews. And that's what, that's what uh, Jonah is upset about. But I wonder too, that uh, I wonder if there's something larger here. And I, I'm trying to think about this as a, as a uh, contribution to a discussion of theodicy, the problem of evil. I mean, the, the whole, section is uh, about the evil that the Lord relented from, the evil that Jonah sees. Uh, what, what the Lord has done seems to be the great evil. Turning from, the, turning from a disaster is a great evil for Jonah. And uh, th- this, is not the, this is not the normal way that the problem of evil is framed. But I wonder if this is touching on uh, a uh, Hebraic way of posing the problem of evil, which, which really is, it seems, the, the kind of thing that Alistair and James were talking about earlier, the question about God's justice and his compassion, um, assuming that there is a God in heaven who is the judge of all the earth, and he does justice, and he is perfect justice, then the problem of evil really is a question of God's inaction. Why doesn't he just sort things out right now? And you could say this. You could say the same thing another way. The the problem of evil really is a problem of God's compassion. Why does He show compassion to people that He should be uh, eliminating or taking care of? So, it, and I think even I think Jeff, even if I agree with you that this is the the particular problem that J- Jonah is reacting to, has to do with Assyria and the future threat that Assyria will pose to Israel. But it does seem to touch on these larger questions about can can we trust this God to be in charge of the universe um, if, he, if he's not going to sort things out the way that we think he should. I think that's helpful, Peter. Uh, and I think it ties in with what I'm saying. And Alistair, I put it, I think put it really nicely, is that Jonah wants to drop out because he doesn't like the way, uh, if this is the way that God is going to be working, if this is uh, his modus operandi, then I just would want to drop out. And I do find that interesting just in knowing so many pastors who feel that way and who evaluate things that way. If this is the way God um, rules, if Jesus rules over his church and over the world and over culture and society or whatever's going on, then, you know, I'm just going to work at Home Depot or Walmart. I'm going to sell insurance because... I can't comprehend, I can't get my mind around what God is doing and why he's doing it. And the things that are happening just kind of make me angry. Uh, and so I'm going to drop out. And, and in that way, Jonah is 
again, a sign to Israel. Uh, Israel, I think, at this point is probably tempted, especially Israel's prophets, the faithful ones. They're tempted to drop out, as Jeremiah was, as Elijah was, and as others. And, and I think maybe that's part of the message of the book here is to Israel, you know, don't drop out. God may be, and his ways are incomprehensible and above ours, but he's got a plan. He's got a purpose. Yeah. And it, like it's uh, Ivan Karamazov, uh, don't turn in your ticket and just uh, decide to decide to check out. I also, it seems like uh, what you're, what we're describing is something like the reaction of the Pharisees to Jesus. Because, you know, they're um, expecting Messiah who's going to come and raise Israel up above the Gentiles, which means he's going to defeat the Gentiles. That would be true justice, God keeping his covenant. And Jesus comes along and starts talking about um, a way of uh, peace, compassion, and love toward your enemies. And uh, that is that is God's way of dealing. That's, that is the implementation of God's kingdom and his justice. But it doesn't look like it to the Pharisees because they they want they want the enemies of Israel to be crushed, and uh, uh, God is doing something different through through Jesus. I think that's helpful, and it, and it puts um, I think it's great actually, but it, it puts it Jonah's response in even sharper juxtaposition with the sailors at the start, who seem to have this very encompassing view of God, and and saying verse fourteen, you know, um, don't let us perish for the sake of this man's life so god could do that if 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 he wanted to um and they end you lord have done as it pleased you um it's very different from jonah's um view but uh, we move on to the next uh, next section where after the first exchange where jonah brings his complaint about the lord's compassion uh and the lord uh, raises a question the lord is an interrogative god here uh, do you have good reason to be angry everything he says is uh, has the force of an interrogative. This central section, uh, Jonah goes out to the east of the city and he builds a shelter and then the Lord appoints the plant and the worm and the hot wind. One of the things that caught my eye was the fact that he goes east of the city. Eastward movement is often significant in scripture. Adam and Eve are cast out to the garden uh, of the garden and there's a cherubim, there are cherubim set at the east gate of the garden. Eastward movement is a movement of exile. It got me thinking about the possibility of some kind of Adamic overlay going through Jonah. And there are a, a number of things that seem to be, uh, that, that are at least tantalizing hints of that. Um, back in chapter one, when he's in the, in, the, in the hold of the ship sleeping, he lay down and he fell fast asleep. It's Radam, which is the, the root of Tardama. Uh, Tardama is the, the description of the deep sleep that Adam goes into in the garden while he's being, uh, while Eve is being created. And Tardama is the that's the kind of deep sleep that Abram goes into when the Lord cuts covenant with him. So there's perhaps an illusion there. Obviously, Jonah is a disobedient prophet who doesn't carry out the Lord's commission. And then eventually in chapter four here, the Lord confronts him. The name that's given to God in verse six, it's uh, Yahweh Elohim, which is the first, the only time it appears in Jonah. But that's the, that's the double name that's used throughout Genesis 2, throughout Genesis 2 in the creation account of uh, where it describes the creation of Eve. Uh, and then I, I, that made me wonder whether the bush and the plant and then the removal of the plant has some uh, distant allusion to the Adam's, to Adam's fig leaves as a covering. So any of those, anyway, those little bits and pieces seem to 
at least suggests the possibility that uh, uh, Jonah is functioning as an Adam figure. And does that does that ring true to anybody? Anything else that you saw in the book that uh, that would uh, support that or develop it? I was less persuaded of that connection, although I do think there is a connection with the beginning of Genesis. But I would see it more with Cain. Um, the question of why the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Yeah. If you do well, will you not be accepted?" Etc. And then. Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Ard, Nod, east of Eden. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me there's some um, parallel between those two characters. Yeah, good, good point. Anybody, anybody develop that at all? Have an idea of what, uh, if, if those early chapters of Genesis are somehow at work here, what's that doing with the story of Jonah? <laughs> I mean, I, I have a completely different idea, which could be complete nonsense. So I could um, share that now and embarrass myself or, or something later. <laughs> Go, please. <laughs> well, okay. So, I mean, this, this is where, because I was thinking about this over the weekend and this is where I am at the moment. So when we looked at the, the first panel of, of the book, we talked about how Jonah lives out this kind of journey into exile and ends up in the belly of Babylon and there he prays towards the temple and there's I, I noticed all sorts of stuff going on lexically with the words used around that and I suppose I got to thinking like is the second panel um just looking back over these those same events but from a slightly different perspective and perhaps from a, a more hypothetical perspective so my my idea was this that you know just as the whale is said to be appointed um we're meant to see the last thing which is appointed in the second panel so this east wind as babylon and i think that makes some some sense like in ezekiel um Ezekiel uses exactly those terms. He talks about this east wind which comes and, and dries up um, Israel and makes Israel wither. Um, he, he refers to Babylon in, in that light. And he also actually refers to Assyria as this big tree um, under which Israel enjoys shade. And when Assyria has gone, um, it said that the nations feel faint. And it's the same word as used when Jonah feels faint. And so, I mean, what I was wondering was this if if this picture in chapter four is that there is jonah and and there's this slightly odd situation where he has kind of two shelters he puts up this sukkah and then it says that afterwards um a plant grows up and there's a slightly strange order of the hebrew you get the sense that jonah rejoices because of the plant but he's not kind of aware of, of the fact that he's rejoicing because of the plant he, he perhaps thinks that the booth is offering him in this shelter and um i basically wonder if what's going on is if jonah is again judah and he's looking at things from judah's perspective and he's kind of frustrated that god that assyria has been such a nuisance to judah and why has god uh, allowed it to exist and i wonder if kind of god is showing him that when Assyria goes and when that shade is taken away, that Babylon is, is going to come and that Jonah hasn't, as Judah, hasn't realized the protection which Assyria has offered him. And so I wonder if there's that going on, if it's a sort of equivalent of Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares and it's, it's meant to teach Jonah that the world is, is this very complex place and you can't just get rid of a nation and think that everything else is, is going to be fine. 
I wonder whether we should see um, Jonah from the perspective of Judah. He seems to minister in the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II and at other um, periods around that time. And the prophecy that he actually gives in Second Kings concerns, I think it's chapter 14, verse 25, concerns the expansion of the borders of Israel in a time when um, the nation is quite sinful in many respects under Jeroboam II, who's repeating many of the sins of his forebear with the, or of the um, previous Jeroboam. And there, I think that fills out something of the picture of the um, gourd in the way that you um, mention um, that the gourd gives a shadow beyond or a shade beyond the booth, which might be connected with the temple perhaps, but it is something that arises um, through the overshadowing power of Assyria that destroys the Aramean kingdoms that have been harassing um, Israel. And then Israel's borders can expand as a result of the raising up of Assyria to remove the threat of the Arameans or the Syrians. And as a result, they're enjoying this shade, but not realizing that the Lord has established Assyria, this great power and threat, also as a shade for them. And if that shade were removed, then um, they would not be too happy. Yeah, so piggybacking on what James and you just said, Alistair, uh, again, back to, to the point we've made before that Jonah is assigned to Israel, represents Israel in some way. Uh, of course, he thinks this is an unmitig- unmitigated calamity, a disaster. But it turns out that um, Nineveh will give some protection to Israel. Um, and uh, re- Jonah ought to rejoice in that, as he did with the plant. And with the fish, so the leafy plant and the great fish uh, represent the protection of the converted Gentiles, and Israel is going to be subject to them for a while, and um, subject to the burning judgment from the Lord, but also then uh, protected within these great world Gentile powers. Uh, And I think I think that's something of what's going on here at the end, Uh, and we have all sorts of examples of this in scripture of uh, uh, the people of God being exiled uh, for one reason or another, that, but ending up being protected by them. So Jacob has to flee from Esau, he's in Padan Aram, uh, but that's protection from Esau, even though it is not all that pleasant living under Laban. Joseph also in Egypt, um, and then of course Jacob and his sons in Egypt, Moses in Midian, David, Exile from the court of Saul in Philistia, the Jews in Babylon, as James has mentioned, uh, and even the diaspora, Jews protected by the beastly nations, um, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, Christians uh, driven out of Jerusalem in Acts 8, and then protected by the Romans in some ways. So um, this, I think this fits in with a, an overall theme in Scripture uh, about how God uses these Gentile nations, both to bring judgment, but also protection. Yeah, that, that fits with the uh, sequence of events. The, the fish, as uh, James and others pointed out, the fish correlates with the plant and the shade. Uh, and the fish is, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, the fish is a, a lifeboat for Jonah. He's going to drown in the, in the depths of the sea, representing 
uh, the people of God who are going to drown in the depths of the Sea of Gentiles, but there's this great fish within the sea, this empire within the sea that gives them protection and then uh, bears them off back to the land. So yeah, the, the, it's structurally that fits the two, uh, the two things that are appointed, the fish and the uh, plant, uh, have the same function, uh, symbolic function in the story. That word appointed seems to play a very important part within the story more generally. You have the big fish that's appointed, but in this chapter you also have the plant is appointed, the worm is appointed, and the scorching east, east wind are, is appointed. One of the things that this suggests, first of all, is the comprehensive character of the Lord's sovereignty from the great east wind to the smallest worm. But it also, I think, gives a sense of the purposeful character of the Lord's ordering of the various forces within his creation. The very smallest development, the, the worm that can bring down this great gourd, is part of his um, purpose and his sovereignty. And likewise, the, the wind has a purpose to play too. And Jonah is not seeing that bigger picture. He's fixated upon the particular element and is unaware of the way that the God who rules his universe in every single one of its details, great and small, might have a purpose for Nineveh beyond just this narrow um, binary of judge or um, deliberate. The idea that it might be spared for a particular purpose beyond just um, some matter of narrow, narrowly conceived justice. God has a good purpose in things that are inscrutable to the human being. And this is very similar, I think, to some of the points that are stressed at the end of the book of Job. Just the inability of us in our attempts to engage in theodicy, to understand the ways in which the Almighty rules in his creation and the reasons that he might have for particular sparing one nation, judging another, and the ways that he causes certain forces to rise up and brings others down. I think that's a, that's a good point. And the, the, force of the, the force of that sequence of events, though, seems to be uh, somewhat different than just stressing God's sovereignty. Um, I mean, the, the Lord appoints this series of things. Uh, it, it has kind of a parabolic feel to it, an enacted parable. I think I used that phrase earlier. Uh, but the point that the Lord seems to be making is not a point about sovereignty so much as compassion. And how, how does that, how does his appointment of the, the plant, the worm, and the wind, uh, how does that communicate what the final verses of the book uh, highlight? That is the, the Lord's compassion to Nineveh and to the cattle of Nineveh. Seems that the re repetition of the question of, do you do well to be angry, um, that we find in verse four, and then in verse nine, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Um, establishes uh, an illuminating juxtaposition between Jonah's relationship to Nineveh and Jonah's relationship to the plant. The plant has no reason in justice to exist. It exists purely as an act of God's gracious um, creation. It has no um, just claim upon its existence. It could be removed as it is removed without any act of injustice occurring. And Jonah sees the city of Nineveh purely in terms of justice and is unable to perceive it in the way that he perceives the plant. 
and the sheer gratuity of its existence as a good thing um, is something that, in the Lord's providence, pushes him back to think about the city of Nineveh from a different perspective. Um, perhaps another way to answer that question, Peter, uh, is to see another dimension to just the psychology here. I'm back kind of this pastoral psychology, is um, that it's not just about Jonah. It's not just about the prophet. It's not even just about Israel. Kind of calling Israel back to her vocation uh, to bring to bring uh, wisdom, to bring deliverance and salvation to the nations. Um, so it, you, you kind of get a Jonah-like attitude. And I, you might have mentioned this, Peter, or somebody else did, I forgot when you get into the New Testament with the Pharisees and with the Jews in general, they're angry about their, uh, the fact that they're still under the thumb of the Romans. They're quite angry about that. And there's two responses to that. You could either fight back uh, or you could drop out. So you have the Essenes that pretty much dropped out, but you also have the, the Pharisees and apparently this comes out in the gospel stories that there is a whole kind of insurrectionist movement here in Israel against Rome. Um, and Jesus comes along and, 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 and uh, shows compassion to Gentiles. And of course, then sends his spirit out and the Gentiles are, many of them are converted. And Jonah-like, the Jews get angry with that and get angry at Paul for going around and, and, and doing this. Um, and so this, this vocation of, of, of uh, delivering God's gifts to the, to the Gentiles gets lost. Um, and Jonah is myopic, myoptic and, and has these blinkers on that he can't, he can't even uh, contemplate what God's bigger program is. And, and that seems to be at least one of the things that is that the Lord is driving Jonah and Israel towards at the end of the book. I wonder if God's argument is a kind of a fortiori argument of the sort that he's saying to Jonah, look, if you, Jonah loves Israel, you know, and, and God is saying, Jonah, if you could see what Assyria is doing and what Nineveh is doing in protecting Israel, you'd be very happy to let it go on living just as you're happy to let this plant go on living. And I wonder if God is, is then saying, if you're happy to spare Nineveh there just as a sort of means to an end, how much more justified is it for me to want to spare Nineveh um, as an end in itself, as something which God himself uh, loves and, and values and, and wants to care for and, and redeem um that that's not that doesn't go against anything that anyone else has said previously but i just wonder if there's that argument in there as well and that that links in with god's compassion i think it's interesting uh, one of the one of the reasons why we have to kind of discuss and mull over the the thrust of this uh, sequence of events is that uh, the lord declares something in the last in the final verses of of jonah uh, but uh, Jonah ends with a question, which I think is a question. Uh, it's in the within within the story. It's a question posed to Jonah. For the reader, of course, it's a question posed to the reader. Uh, I've thought about it as being similar to some of Jesus' parables. The 
the uh, uh, the parable of the uh, the prodigal son, for example, which kind of it doesn't end with a question, but it kind of leaves the the hearer of that story to uh, and and particularly the original hearers are who are people complaining about Jesus welcoming prodigals to the table. It leaves them questioning, you know, uh, uh, looking at themselves and uh, looking looking at the older brother and seeing themselves in the older brother. It poses a question at the end. So, and then the Lord is, as I said, is is interrogative throughout chapter four. He's he's posing questions to Jonah, making declarations about himself, but also posing these questions. So we end with this kind of open ended thing that uh, this open ended conclusion that uh, uh, that leaves the readers having to having to wrestle with the what is it the Lord has been teaching, and uh, how are we going to react then to the Ninevehs? And and to the cattle, uh, the, the the fact that it ends on the cattle has always intrigued me. The the the, uh, the cattle have been participating in the in the in the fast, as chapter three says, and then at the end of the book, similar to Job, as Alistair points out, there's this focus on the animals and the Lord's compassion for the animals. Um, but it, again, the the interrogative ending, I think, is is important for the rhetorical force of the book, and one of the reasons why they you have this. Uh, it, it lends itself to uh, trying to uh, tease out what the Lord's trying to trying to say because it's not it's not as explicit as a kind of thus saith the Lord declaration at the conclusion. I must say, I just find it an absolutely brilliant piece of work. You know, they, they, I just feel like there's so much depth to it which I'm missing, and so many questions posed behind the surface of it which I'm, I'm not, yeah, getting to grips with properly. I'm still wondering what more we can see in Genesis because there do seem to be so many tantalizing themes that we've already mentioned, the story of the flood, um, the story of the um, Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel. And it seems to me that we're thrown back into these accounts to maybe think if there is some, um, as it were, text, these various texts that can function as counter melodies to the melody of Jonah itself, that together with it will reveal a glorious harmony. Um, thinking about the story of Cain and Abel again, there's this, um, the concern of Jonah can be seen as equivalent to the concern of Cain. Um, like Cain, he's annoyed that the Lord has accepted the offering of his of this other group. Um, he's really angry as a result. And then the Lord asks him about his anger. And then there's the question about dying, judgment from the ground, um, the ground failing to give him what he wants from it in the same way as the, the um, gourd is frustrated. And then on the other hand, you have this keeper of sheep, person associated with cattle and other um, livestock. And then Jonah is associated with the, the booth and the gourd. He's... In that sense, he's framed more like like Cain. He's uprooted from the land. He becomes a fugitive and a wanderer, and he's wondering what's going to be, become of him. Is the Lord going to preserve him? And he'd rather die than um, have the situation that he sees with Nineveh. And so he goes out towards the east. And I wonder, likewise, with the story of the flood, he's the dove that's sent on these two separate missions and then there's this emphasis at the end of the book once again upon the animals the many cattle within the city um what is the meaning also of the number one hundred and twenty thousand? 
um, that's something I've puzzled over. Um, you can think about just the number of the ranks of Israel as they go in and out of um, out of Egypt, and then as they go into the Promised Land with six hundred thousand. Um, or is it associated with the number one hundred and twenty in the context of the judgment of the Ark of the Flood? Um, or is it something to do with the number of Israel itself, with the twelve times ten thousand? One hundred thousand, ten thousand. Yeah, uh, th- those are all those are all helpful. I, I I think there you could say that there's still you you're kind of going through all three of the first uh, initial of the initial falls and uh, fall stories. You, you pointed out the connections with Cain, which are illuminating. There's I think there's obvious connections with the flood. I still think that there's an Adamic root here because uh, I mean Israel Israel is an Adamic people. Uh, they're 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 the new humanity. They're called to uh, bring blessing to the nations uh, and to to forge an, a uh, humanity from the divided nations that uh, scattered at Babel. Uh, and insofar as Israel is, uh, Jonah represents Israel and Israel's reluctance to carry out that mission. Uh, that means that there there's a there's a fundamental failure, and the Lord is. Uh, confronting Jonah and implicitly Israel about that failure of mission and calling them back to that original, that original vocation. So I think, yeah, all those, all those early stories of Genesis seems to be uh, at work here. You're, I I think you're probably right that the, the Cain Abel story seems to be the most prominent because of the, the particular questions the Lord asks Jonah. Uh, But uh, those, these other, these other things are working in the background as part of part of the background and part of the story of Israel.